welcome back to Kind Mind. This is Todd. I hope you've had a soothing holiday Thanksgiving weekend. And I just want to say how grateful I am for all the time that we've spent together in virtual space here or in person at events. It means so much to me to be able to share inspiration. We have the last Kind Mind Gathering of the year coming up this Tuesday, if you hear this in time, at the Homestead in Plano, Illinois. You can visit the website for the details. And then we will return after the holidays at the end of January, January 29th, I believe. So this Tuesday, November 29th, 7 p.m., doors open at 6 with soup and drinks inside the main house. The theme is called The First Virtue, and it's really going to be about ahimsa in yoga and the philosophy of nonviolence and its implications and complications. So, hope you can join that. Of course, for those who are supporting the podcast on Patreon, there will be a virtual option for you to attend. And as always, if you're unable to attend, but you're a Patreon member, you can just send me a message and I will send you a link to view the recording afterwards. And if you'd like to become a member on Patreon, you can just pitch in $5 at patreon.com slash kindmind. I'm also happy to announce that in January 2023, in the new year, my friend Laura Jaramillo, who's a licensed professional counselor, and myself will be leading and hosting a virtual course on anxiety called I Am Not My Anxiety. It will meet on Mondays starting January 9th for one hour in the evening for six weeks. And if you or someone you love could use support with anxiety and would like to build resilience in community, check it out, michaeltodfink.com slash events. You'll find the link to register. We get into identity, culture, mind-body tools for coping, and healing from trauma, and transforming our relationship to our mind and body and the world. So I look forward to being of service in that way in 2023. Today's episode was recorded very recently, just last month, October 6th, I believe, down in Indianapolis. I was invited to do a talk and a gathering at the Bain Gallery in Carmel, Indiana, thanks to master photographer Robin Bellamo and also Lindsay Trossel, host of the Beautiful Gray Sponge podcast. And the theme was unseen. Robin had an exhibit of photographs, and I drew some inspiration from that and spoke on this topic. The gift of sight is amazingly profound. I mean, what is seeing? What can we definitively know through the sense of sight? Where are you right now? You might say, I'm at home. Where's that? It's in this town. Where's that? It's in this region, this country, this planet. Where's that? It's in this solar system. Where's that? It's in this galaxy. Where's that? Basically, all we can do is keep deferring what we think we know till we get to some unidentified or undefined aspect of knowledge. 
forces us to accept that we don't know where the hell we are. We cannot truly see our place. But we take comfort in being able to see something, to be able to see around us, and to take in the beauty of colors, impressions, images, and navigate the world predominantly through that sense. But I get into the apparatus of the eye and compare it to a virtual reality headset and how we see with this apparatus from light waves making contact with the objects, encoding them, and bringing that information to our eyes, to our retina, where our brain produces projections or maps. Talk a little bit about the electromagnetic spectrum. And uh, I I forgot to mention the German-British astronomer and composer, William Herschel, who in 1800 performed a game-changing experiment trying to measure the temperatures of the colors in the light spectrum. Using a prism, he divided sunlight into the colors of the rainbow. And then he strategically placed black light bulbs to absorb the heat to try to measure the temperature of each color. And he found them increasing up to red, which impelled him to put the bulb beyond the red light. And there he found the highest temperature of all. And that was the first time someone demonstrated that there's light that we cannot see. In this case, infrared radiation. Infra meaning beyond the red. So there's more to a rainbow than meets the eye. Now, I also uh, refer multiple times to a quote attributed to Helen Keller about her taking comfort in the unseen because it is the unseen which is eternal and the seen is temporary. But I believe that she must have been expressing feelings based on a passage from Corinthians in the Bible, which I didn't connect at first. But that is a very interesting philosophical insight. Sometimes I think of the limitations of seeing. Our eyes get more and more blurry as you move to the edges of our periphery. And that basically helps us cope with the lack of acuity out there and then the lack of access beyond that and behind our head. But if you ever worry about your vision getting worse, Or what happens after death when the headset no longer works at all? I sometimes get curious because we can't see vast distances and we can't see the microscopic. So who knows what's really available to perceive without the eyes? And and this is no way to diminish the real challenges for people with blindness. Just that we know we can't see in the way that we might have been able to forever. So I think it can prepare us to think about all the light we don't see as it is. So I hope you enjoy this episode. 
and it'd be great to connect on Tuesday if possible. Otherwise, send me a message. You can contact me through the website. I'd love to read your reviews if you listen on Apple Podcasts so I can get to know what you like, what you don't like, what else you'd like to see in the future with this show. Thank you. It's so important being social animals that we have an opportunity to share in fellowship, to seek the unseen, to discover what's what's truly there. When I'm looking at these photographs also, I get I get a lot more inspiration. Photography is like an example of how Robin and the artist is slowing down time so much that you can see more. I like to say in response to a quote from the poet Rumi who says, the quieter you are, the more you can hear. I like to say, the slower you go, the more you can see. There's a story, like the picture says a thousand words. So I, I'm telling part of the conversation tonight slowed way down. When I looked at his images, I just took some notes, just scribbled some ideas that I want to share with you. And first thing that comes to mind with this slowing down, well, uh, the filmmaker uh, and creator of Twin Peaks, David Lynch, said, just slow things down and they become more beautiful. The effect of slow motion in film. And we would do that a lot with make, making music videos with my band. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, that's what it, the music can look and sound like when you just slow things down. It reminds me of this Zen parable of a woman walking down a path and sees a horse galloping in her direction very quickly. And as the horse and rider come past, she shouts out to him, why the rush and where are you going? And he shouts back, I don't know, ask the horse. <laughs> Late Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh commented on this saying something like, we're familiar with the expression, don't just sit there, do something. And what we ought to be telling people is, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> Meaning, we're riding on the force of habits, biological drives, our emotional impulses, the cultural pressures, the heuristics that are unseen in our, in our brains that have been programmed on so many different levels. And it just carries us places. And to me, the unseen is a big Venn diagram. And inside of that, you've got things like the invisible. That which is invisible is definitely unseen, but not everything that's unseen is invisible. So it'd be a subset. You also have maybe what I would call in an archaic way, the invisible, which means we don't see it, but that doesn't mean nobody can see it or no observer can see it. I'll start there, I guess, with some reflections, start this conversation by bouncing between the macroscopic and microscopic. I'll talk a little bit about my take on what it means to be an observer. So in microscopic and macroscopic, you have the, the root skopos in Greek, that's the observer. The cosmos is ever adorning. 
in ancient Greek. So the observer gets to perceive this kaleidoscopic world that's ever being adorned with, with change across time. Now we're in between the macroscopic and microscopic, right? We can't see how far the universe goes, especially not without the aid of something like the James Webb Space Telescope. But we also can't see the microscopic life that lives symbiotically with our bodies, the 10 to 1 bacteria, to human cells. Probably good that we don't see some of this stuff. <laughs> no. But what's funny about that is you're talking about a seesaw. The word sea comes from Proto-Indo-European sec. You could really parse through all these different ways we use sea, which illuminate different ways of searching this world. You, you have something like, I'll see you home, or see to it that this gets done. I'll see you soon, or see here. But why we fall in the middle has something to do with our eyes, I suppose. I've always been curious about vision, because when people ask that question, if you, you know, had to go without sight or sound, I always want to hold on to my sight as long as possible. I have astigmatism in my left eye, and when I close my right eye, the world gets warmer. When I close my left eye, the world gets cooler. It's like two different filters, which when people talk about photography like Robbins and they're like, you know, this is enhanced, so this is, and like everything changes just between my two eyes. So what's, what's the way things really look? If that's what it looks like to the observer, that's, that's what it looks like. So the unseen really orients us towards the nature of the, of the world. This eye that we get to, one way we get to experience or perceive the universe is part of the brain. It's like an outer part of the brain. And we perceive wavelengths of light between 400 and 700 nanometers. And some people describe this like an octave on the piano. That represents the amount we can see in the electromagnetic spectrum. I don't think that's correct though, because waves go on getting longer and shorter. On, on one extreme end, you have radio waves that can get longer and longer infinitely. And on the other end, you have gamma waves, which are like oscillating very fast. The radio very slow, gamma very fast. And we see a, a tiny band in between. So I would say that it's more like, as a musician, when I try to visualize this, that the piano is like the visible light spectrum. We can only hear from that lowest end of the piano and highest end, and if, if the piano kept going infinitely in both directions, the piano would represent the visible light spectrum. So with waves of electromagnetic radiation being infinitely long and infinitely packed in uh, what's called photons, which are basically the the nicest way to try to understand the mystery of light being both a wave and a particle. So little packets of energy. But we see in this narrow band, red to purple. And why do we see that? I guess part of it is because we don't really need to see beyond it to do what we need to do. 
other species can see beyond what we can see or in a little bit different range. Like a snake can see into the infrared, so a snake can sort of see temperature, but that's really useful for the snake to be able to see the warmth, the infrared radiation being emitted from its prey. Our intelligence allows us to skip that range of the electromagnetic spectrum because we can think abstractly in time. A hunter can look at the tracks of a buffalo and go, it was probably here like an hour ago, and then use intelligence to track it. Whereas like a tiger, also a hunter, will walk right over tracks, they mean absolutely nothing to it. It, it, it uses other skills to be able to catch its food. A bee can perceive ultraviolet light, which is beyond the purple, infrared being beyond the red. The bee can see the ultraviolet light, and that helps it be able to find the nectar. The UV light coming from the flowers would, would give it a totally different color if we could see it. But it, it's sort of like a runway for an airplane for the bee, it knows where to go. And we don't have to see that. So in a sense, to me, this means we aren't really seeing everything that's there. Some people say we see less than 1% then of the world. I don't think that that's the best way to put it. I think it's more like we see less than 1% of the electromagnetic spectrum, what we see we call light, but we, we aren't missing the story. We got sort of the, the cliff notes of the story. So it'd be like having a book and somewhere in the middle, there's a paragraph that summarizes everything that happens. So you, you got the book, you got the story, but everything else is in a language that you can't read. That's partly the story of what it means to be a human being. And when I think about you know the fear of my eyesight getting worse, I reflect on something Helen Keller said. I find so much comfort knowing that the seen is temporary and the unseen is eternal. And when I learn more about how different observers observe the natural world, I really feel like that's our VR headset. That's literally our virtual reality kit. The eyes, the brain. And through that, we see this world between 400 and 700 nanometers. Now, another reason why that's the range is because our eyes are very much like a battery. So at a certain threshold, our eyes respond to radiation. That would be at 700 nanometers approximately, which means waves that are longer than that, heading towards radio waves, don't get picked up by our eyes. But if they did, we would constantly be strained and there would never be darkness. If you could see those slower waves, infrared, and beyond, even at night, even without visible light, even without sunlight, we would, there would be a constant glow. And this theoretical physicist, Ron Davis, describes it like this. When you hit that threshold of 700, the energy that's in those photons has enough of a voltage to disrupt one uh, molecule in the retina and it's a dye molecule, and that dye molecule gets disrupted and creates a chemical reaction that triggers an electric impulse that stimulates one fiber of the optic nerve. And that 
signal goes to the brain and then the VR set turns on and it it's, says something about what it means to be a conscious human being perceiving the world. So that's the, the, the lower limit. On the higher limit of energy, you have the 400 nanometers. 400 nanometers compared to 700 means that there's faster, shorter wavelengths, higher energy. But now that our eyes are already responding to that amount of energy, we have to do something about the higher end because we don't have the same mechanism that you have on the lower end, which is just not to react to it. On the higher end, beyond the, the violet, you have the ultraviolet. And all we can do for this is filter it out with the cornea. There's fluid in the eye and that absorbs some of it and helps to protect from the, those higher charges. This narrow band is like a battery though. Any more and the battery starts to explode or burn up or ooze out acid. So you have this, this like narrow window of output that's useful, just like, just like a battery. And sometimes when there's certain surgeries, or if we were to just look directly at the sun, this is an imperfect design. The, that little bit of protection with the cornea can't protect us from an onslaught of, or being bombarded with more powerful radiation. So that is what the, the human VR set is like. Now, bringing this more to an abstract philosophy, there is also the overlooked with Unseen. We're just beginning to understand how humans store so many impressions because of how vulnerable we are as children, in the same way that a plant is vulnerable. And we develop different types of shame and senses of inferiority based on those impressions. And it's the actual unseen impressions of trauma that is trauma. It's not true to say that this traumatizes somebody. It all depends on the processes that happen unseen. That's why sometimes they call uh, traumatic experiences, PTEs, potentially traumatic experiences, or ACEs in school adverse childhood events because it's unknown at first what the actual effect is. So in that sense, a human being is really just the tip of the iceberg. What we see of, of one another is like an icon on a computer. You click on it and a whole story slowly starts to emerge. And trauma having to do with our survival mechanisms in the brain is somewhat subverbal because there isn't language in the lower parts of the brain that's in the higher cortex and being children going through adverse experiences we're all vulnerable just being born they say some people some philosophers say is like a metaphysical trauma coming into this world or coming out of this world and our whole life is a journey of healing, just from the pain of being like bound in this body, being, going through all that vulnerability. And Nietzsche said something like, shame is really like the acorn that doesn't get to experience the oak tree, being the oak tree. So there's all of this potential for becoming that's unmanifest. So another subset of the unseen, I would say, is the unmanifest. We can't see it because it hasn't unfolded yet or it's a uh, 
implied, but not there yet. Uh, philosopher and physicist David Bohm called the world the implicate order, which means everything's folded in on itself. Another way to think of trauma, in addition to subverbal, a, a doctor and scientist and author, Gabor Mate, has a book called The Myth of Normal. He talks about trauma being of two kinds, the like more severe and kind of lower T trauma. But it's also pre-verbal. If, if so much of going through life as children is scary, vulnerable, overwhelming, crying as a baby, that's all before language. Some of the unseen does not have words. And when we're trying to talk about it, when we're trying to express it, we have those limitations. I do work in a hospital also as an addiction counselor from time to time and a group facilitator. And when we're doing creative things or artistic things, I get a lot of resistance. People say, I don't want to draw a picture, I don't want to paint something. And I try to explain to them, it's not about being good at art, it's about being able to access dimensions of our being that can unlock some of these stories. And they will find out when they lean into that, that their subconscious is communicating something to them. Some of the impressions have no words for it, but it definitely affects the way they live, the way they, what they fear, and how they love, and so on. Like something like the five love languages. In the original book in the 90s, it never mentioned the word trauma as, as best I can remember. But when I think about that book now, it's, it's sort of like we have different love languages because of trauma. Why would somebody be resistant to gifts? Because there's like gifts, there's acts of service, there's physical touch, quality time like we have tonight. Why would anybody not, you know, speak all five? <laughs> like, we should be, you know, very fluent in all five. But like imagine a situation where uh, a child goes through divorce and one parent they, they don't live with and to make up for that time not physically present, that parent is always sending gifts. Well, the child would, you know, feels a, a sense of trauma maybe because of neglect or abandonment and what they would much rather have than the gifts would be the actual physical company, the presence, the attention. Lindsay shared a quote recently from Simone Weil, a French author and mystic. Attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. Um, and in, in a world today where we're constantly being distracted, like attention is the commodity, is what people are trying to buy, and every app is trying to get your attention for another second. So when you give somebody your attention, when we give each other our attention, what a gift that is. So anyways, I could imagine somebody not wanting to speak that particular love language because the gifts remind them of the time when they didn't have the love the way they wanted it. Same with physical touch. If somebody's been physically harmed or violated or betrayed or sexually harmed, and even if it's their most intimate relative or uh, loving partner, if they're touched unexpectedly, it could trigger those sensations, those fears. And sometimes in couples therapy, you know, one of the two partners is saying, I just don't get it. You know, all I'm doing is just 
initiating affection and it seems like there's a there's a wedge between us with love but when that partner can learn more about the unseen and the the true story of everything that makes their partner them and it's not so personal but unexpected touch can trigger that unseen make it manifest the effects manifest then they can find ways to communicate to find a loving language that makes sense or a way to initiate that kind of love that isn't scary so freud was on to something with all of his goofy theories <laughs> <laughs> about dreams and and everything the, the one thing that i think was profound was that there is an unconscious there's an unconscious that we don't see that's really influencing so much of our psychology and then his pupil carl jung took that further with concepts like the shadow the, this unseen aspect of our personality that we hide from um there was a greek philosopher who's lesser known during the time of socrates anaxagoras who was imprisoned i believe and sentenced to death for claiming that the moon was um a rocky object orbiting the earth not a god and he was severely punished for that but he had a quote appearances are glimpses of the unseen and so i invite all of you to reflect on that tonight like a journal prompt and sort of like what Helen Keller said that the the seen is temporary the unseen is eternal so the final piece that i'd like to explore a little bit comes from mythology and more mystical or spiritual aspect of this i mentioned before i play music i've studied mindfulness and spirituality around the world and spent time with in an ashram in india with monks and masters of meditation and yoga and then I work at a hospital in psychology so I feel like not very um adept at any one of those three pursuits but having just a little bit of the right combination of those three I think puts me in a unique position where I can kind of weave these three ways of getting at truth again the physicist David Bohm said we pretty much use art religion and science to explore what's true about the universe so anyways this word see or seen in sanskrit language the lang- the old language of ancient india and the vedas and yoga the word for seen is ikshana and this comes up in a lot of text and scriptures but one that i don't purport to deeply understand but continue to explore my whole life because it's 18 books is the mahabharata of india which contains in the sixth book the bhagavad gita i'm sure most of you are familiar with that book that book has 18 chapters it's considered to be like a bible of the people of india who practice what we call hinduism but this word ikshana comes up in this great epic and the premise of this story is that you have two families one family is called the pandavas the other is called the kauravas and on the surface the kauravas represent evil and negative in the world and the pandavas are kind and loving and noble but as you get deeper into the epic you find that 
the different characters within these families are complex and nuanced, and it's not as simple as good versus evil. However, the primary antagonist on the Korva side is the prince Duryodhana. And Duryodhana has a father, the king, named Dhritarashtra, which loosely means the blind one. And his father in the book, in the story, is literally blind, unable to see. And his mother, Gandhari, wears a blind fold. And I think this is really symbolic. So his father cannot see. And the, the metaphor there is that he's born ignorant, Duryodhana. So he's not truly evil, it's just he can't fully see. And what, what, what other, the other thing that fascinates me about Kandari wearing the blindfold is it's almost like culturally there's this feminine power that's unmanifest. She could see, but Dhritarashtra and the family don't really want her to see because if he can't see and she can, what does that say about the balance of power between a husband and wife or a man and woman? Anyways, there's an anecdote in this book of Duryodhana meeting with Krishna. So Krishna is a warrior in this story. He's also God incarnate, but not everybody can see it. Some on the Pandava side can, like the, the, the prince of the Pandavas is named Yudhisthira, and he's a loving, noble, soon-to-be king on the good side. And in this one particular anecdote, before the war begins, this is a, a story about a war, and they're trying to avoid war. They both come to Krishna to talk about how to deal with this tension, the conflict. Krishna's sleeping, which is another metaphor for God unmanifest in the world. But Duryodhana comes and sits down at his head, and Yudhisthira sits down at his feet. And the message here is that Yudhisthira is humble, Duryodhana is arrogant. And it's interesting how the words arrogant and ignorant are kind of close phonetically. Duryodhana is born from the ignorance of his, of his parents. So when Krishna wakes up, he only sees Yudhisthira because sitting up, Duryodhana is behind him and Yudhisthira is at his feet. The wisdom, I think, encoded in the Mahabharata and these scenes are paths of seeing. Later on, the blind king is asking his minister, Sanjaya, who has some power of like psychic vision. He's asking Sanjaya to, throughout the book to tell him what's going on, to be his eyes, so to speak. And Sanjaya has the power of remote viewing in this book. But he's also telling him about Krishna. He asks him about Krishna and, and Krishna has many names. And then Ikshana comes up, this word for seeing comes up when Sanjay and, and the blind king are talking. He says one of the names uh, for Krishna is Satvata, which means the truth, or he is the truth. Part of this name for Krishna is that there's a truth inside of this incarnation of Vishnu, the symbol of the Lord that sustains the world. And he's also called the lotus-eyed one because the eyes are the window to the soul. And when you look into the soul of, of Krishna, you're going to see the whole universe unfolding in the form of a lotus. In a literal way, 
He supposedly had big eyes, but in a, in a more spiritual sense, the lotus represents unfolding of that truth and how the lotus grows in mud and in murky water, but it is never truly um, impaired by that. The lotus leaf, I saw this in India, repels water. You can take a lotus leaf and dunk it in the pond and pull it out and it's completely dry. Or if you pour water, a glass of water on a lotus leaf, it looks kind of like balls of mercury that roll right off, which is why it became such a meaningful symbol. So anyways, for this sattvata of Krishna, you need ikshana, you need some vision. Otherwise, he's invisible. And the way to see this, the, the, the lotus eyes of Krishna, is through the Vedas. The Vedas, in a literal sense, are the four books of yoga, or ancient India, that, where we get things like yoga and different philosophy and how to live in those ancient times. But Veda literally means knowledge. So it's not just those four books. The way to see Krishna is through knowledge. The knowledge are his eyes, the knowledge to see you and for you to see it, or for God to see us or for us to see God. So I love all of these, uh, these different mystical stories. This is a motif about vision, even in other mythologies that I'm less familiar with, like the Eye of Horus in Egyptian mythology. There is a conflict between the god Horus and uh, Set. And she steals his eye or destroys his eye, I think, in, in some versions of it. And the journey unfolds with how to heal the eye. It's sort of like the heart chakra in yoga being named Anahata. The A is negation, so it loosely translates to unbroken. So many mythological stories are about correcting our vision or recovering or discovering the, the unseen, the unmanifest. On Horus's head is a falcon. Pretty amazing for those ancient times to choose to put a falcon on the head of that god because the falcon we know today has incredible vision. The falcon can see more than two and a half times more acutely than human beings. And of course, they can use that to fly down and get their prey. They can nosedive at speeds over 200 miles per hour. And the last thing I'd like to say is just that whatever happens when we lose this apparatus is less scary to me when I contemplate all of this because it feels like we're just going to take the VR set off. When I know that all these other species have different headsets, I get less scared about being able to see what it, or see the unseen afterwards. But it's funny to me that all the epistemology of the human race, all of the science, is based on a headset that we don't understand. And that headset includes the eyes, but ultimately it's about consciousness, what it means to have the lights on inside, that we think is kind of different than that of a plant, that of, a, of an insect, especially that of something like a rock. But then, if all of our knowledge 
comes from observing a world without knowing what the observer is, what can we really say is a fact? Kerouac said something like, what is it with our obsession with facts and our compulsion to live them out? This would be like the dreamer of a dream, measuring everything going on in the dream, looking at the stars, making calculations, what can really be said to be true about the dream without ever knowing the dreamer? Jung said something like, the one who looks out dreams, the one who looks in awakens. And yeah, we don't know what this apparatus is, but that's because I think that which is most innate is the most overlooked. So the question was, could, could you repeat or um, elaborate further on the quote from Helen Keller, which I believe is something like, I find comfort in the knowledge that the seen is temporary and the unseen is eternal. I don't know if she means it in absolute terms, but let me give you an example from the Vedas, from the Upanishads of the Vedas. In dim light, a seer could mistake a rope in the corner of a room to be a snake. Okay. So the snake is the appearance, but it's untrue. It, so the, the seen is unreal, the real is unseen, but not invisible. That's why I said there's some sub subsets. It's unseen because we're not looking with the right eyes. Anais Nin said, we don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. And the French author Marcel Proust said, the real voyage of discovery consists of not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. So the snake in the rope has a real effect, even though the, the snake is the manifestation of ignorance. Now, it's hard to say when ignorance begins. And so in, in spiritual sense, you can only really say when Satori happens in Zen, when somebody wakes up to what's real. The real is the rope. And so all of the misery, the suffering, is because of the fear associated with what's not true. And I would imagine not having the same kind of VR set that we had, Helen Keller may have had the ability to tap into something that's more deeper, more fundamental about what it means to exist. And so when, when we can, so this other interesting thing about like the analogy of the rope, if there's no light, it's not an issue. If in full light, it's not an issue. It's where we stand with like the 400 to 700 nanometers in the in-between where all the, all the drama ensues. Now, that ignorance is the real problem that's also contributing to our, um, our self-destruction. We try to find all kinds of solutions to save ourselves from ourselves, but they're all based on the wrong premise. Yes, there, there may be some nice things about having different kinds of energy and stuff, but we're still plundering the earth to create the nicer things.
right, and claiming that's enlightenment. But the real enlightenment would be to go to the source of ignorance that creates the arrogance that would make us want to plunder the earth in the first place, to loot the earth and steal from one another and put us on a path of annihilation. So probably not until we can actually come together in fellowship and try to figure out what is the root of the, of the ignorance that would make us harm each other and, and harm the earth and harm the source and lead us uh, like the, the blind king in Duryodhana in the story of the Mahabharata. I just remembered another translation for the dark prince of the Mahabharata, Duryodhana literally translates to one who is difficult to fight. So ignorance or darkness is difficult to fight because it's not real. Darkness is the absence of light. Light is something, darkness is when there's not something. So darkness is difficult to fight something that isn't, in, in a sense, isn't existing. And Dur is the opposite of Su. So Surya is the god, the sun light. So Durya is the opposite of Surya, just like Sukha means happiness and Dukkha means suffering in Buddhism.